Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Janice Pate. We're at Arlen Vineyard today. It's May 25th, 2021. Janice, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, the first question, the biggest question to get started with is why wine? Uh, probably the farming. Um, I certainly was drawn to that. I had uh, some business colleagues that introduced me to a Montrachet in my late 20s. Um, and I loved it and uh, had no idea the range uh, of those even. Wandered into a shop and, uh, in L.A and began learning more, but, mm-hmm. um, but my, it wasn't my dream or my plan to have uh, a vineyard and certainly a wine label. It just, it happened, mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about your life before wine then. Tell us about uh, kind of upbringing and, and education. I grew up on a farm in Washington State, 4-H kid, can still recite the pledge. Um, fell off a lot of horses and did a lot of chores in the barn, um, learned hard work, learned waking up early. Mm-hmm. I worked at a dairy farm in high school and fed calves uh, for them. And uh, I, my big plan was to go to WSU and study animal science so that I could be a herdsman at the local dairy, much to my mom's dismay. Uh, that was my big plan. And to major in animal science, you have to have a... Um, business law class and an accounting class. And I ended up studying finance and economics and uh, finished one class short of a minor in Japanese as well. And so um, that led me to an internship with Disney and uh, working in their risk management department. And then 23 years of, of corporate risk management and eventually at some point I had a friend pull me aside and say, what are, you, what are you doing? Yes, the company loves you, but they could also replace you. And I was in three cities a week, six days a week on the road. And they pointed out the lack of uh, balance <laughs> in my life and said, why don't you figure out what you really want to do and go do it? And mm-hmm. so my big plan was to move home to the Northwest where my extended family is, mom and nieces and nephews and siblings. And um, opened my own little insurance agency focused on vineyards and orchards and wineries and using my risk management career experience. And so I started studying remotely at UC Davis in their certificate program so that I would be a good insurance broker. And I was looking for an eight acre listing here on Calkins Lane and Google Maps brought me to this 40 acre listing. Uh, I was working without a realtor and I zeroed out the GPS three different times it brought me to this listing and so I said okay universe I don't know what you're trying to tell me but I'm listening Uh, and it was March and rainy and gray and typical Oregon northwest weather and um, there was an old house from the 60s that was very little redeeming about it it had um, it was just a a rectangle that hadn't been looked after no character it wasn't a charming farmhouse that could have been rehabbed 
Uh, and then there was a huge sheet metal barn that was like a patchwork of old sheet metal uh, that was filled to the brim with all sorts of, of things. And I made emptying that a condition of closing. Um, but I, uh, I decided, I knew it was vineyard land. I read the, the Red Hills uh, soil report and I still didn't have plans to plant a vineyard. Um, but in mid 2012, it was uh, a good deal. And um, I really thought I would just plant a garden for time being and, mm -hmm. and figure things out. <laughs> and I bought the fire department pizza and they did a, a learn to burn, uh, burn to learn um, with the house. And so the neighbors had folks over for wine and cheese to watch the fire. Um, and people lined up on Calkins to see that happen. And, and it was really useful. They lit the house, um, filled it with smoke nine different times before they finally let it burn. And so those, those new probies were able to go in and find the hidden duffel bag in the smoke and, and get that practice with it. Um, uh, and the bottom 10 acres of the property down on Dop Road um, had 300-ish hazelnut trees that were, they hadn't been pruned for 10 years or so and weren't a disease-resistant variety. And I did a lot of homework on whether they could be redeemed and, and probably would have only gained 60% of, of any capacity. And they just recommended I take them out and, mm -hmm. and plant fresh. And so I... Cooper and I picked up hazelnut sticks for the first first few years. Um, and she, Cooper here, is uh, nine years old. She was 10 weeks old when I bought the property, so she's been with me the whole time. So before I get into the, to the story from there, I'm, I'm curious, you, you talked about the, the, the career at Disney. I'm curious what you do as a risk manager for Disney and what, what, what prompted all the travel and, and the work? What, was, what, what, what were you actually doing for, for your the, job? Some of the travel, um, and that was, that was later, I moved to the underwriting side, and so there was a lot of travel with that. Um, with Disney, I was visiting, at the time, they were integrating Cap Cities and ABC. Um, they owned the Mighty Ducks hockey team at the time, and they had the Anaheim uh, Angels, mm -hmm. California Angels, when I uh, first started watching them. Uh, and um, everything from the attractions, uh, all, of, all of the things that, um, if you think about the edge of the seats on the Indiana Jones ride, the first time our risk management team rode that after the Imagineers were done with it, it was a lot faster, it was a whole lot bumpier. Um, the armrests were metal, uh, they didn't have padding. Um, I came out bruised <laughs> uh, from that, so, um, all sorts of those different things. They were building the Disney Cruise Line at the time. Um, I started on the entertainment risk management side, so motion pictures and television. And so I took production and post-production classes at UCLA so that I would be a good, uh, a good contributor to the team. Um, and in that case, I built, as a financial analyst, mm -hmm. I built a, um, a pool so that, because most of those pictures have such tight budgets, they can't afford the premiums that they really need to be paying to have the proper coverage uh, for cast and crew and everything else that they need liability. Um, so I built a retention pool where they could buy in at a lower amount 
And when they didn't have losses, then those funds were available for future production should, should something happen. And so I worked for the entertainment risk manager on that. Um, and it meant, you know, getting to go down to the darkest parts of LA in the middle of the night to watch them, you know, blow something up or, or stage some, some stunt um, was all very interesting, mm -hmm. so, yeah. I imagine that your role would have been sort of, you would have sort of been seen as someone who was kind of getting in the way of something that people maybe wanted to do. The that department, was... definitely. I mean, there are a lot of times you call and you're asking for exposure information, you know, what all are you doing to one of the business units? And, and um, again, as the financial analyst, you're, you're a data gatherer and a, a bearer of bad news in some cases. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. But the, the risk manager, Steve Wilder, is still uh, there as their risk manager. So he's had a long tenure and is certainly trusted and um, navigated an awful lot of, of mm -hmm. changes over the years. Mm -hmm. yeah. Interesting. So you made the decision to, to, to come back to the Northwest. Why here? Why, why, why in, outside Newburgh, Oregon? Uh, the Willamette Valley and the draw of, of Pino. Um, I didn't... I didn't have as much confidence in Oregon Chardonnay when I first, I was hopeful, um, but I didn't have enough exposure to appreciate Chardonnay in, in 2012 um, here, um, but certainly a Pinot. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. I did some investigation up around Kelowna and on the BC side, mm -hmm. and from a business perspective, just the, um, the commerce across the border would have been prohibitive. So. Mm -hmm. That was part of the reason for, for that. And also just family, being able to be near nieces and nephews. So from the idea of starting an insurance agency to, to, Which to, I never did. to, to this, I noticed that there's not an insurance agency. I guess that's the next project. <laughs> Tragic failure. <laughs> yeah. uh, tell me about how it kind of unfolded for you. You found the, you found the property first. You're still not thinking mm -hmm. about vineyard. So, so what, yeah. what's, the, what's the prompt into actually planting grapes here? Same friend said, you know, if you are eventually going to plant grapes, uh, you should probably get started. They're spring chicken. Um, <laughs> because it does take a few years. And so, uh, so I thought I would plant just a small amount. And then uh, you meet Sterling Fox and he starts talking to you about layout and how it might work. And, and uh, he's very convincing and, and rightfully so. He's so talented and so knowledgeable. Um, and I'm very grateful to have, have met him. I wish I had known him. Um, prior to building this garage and prior to, to making some of those decisions, mm -hmm. um, I probably didn't understand quite, you know, all the, the, the detail. Mm -hmm. um, but I love the way that he laid out the vineyard and um, the curve of the path down to the, to the lower field. And so I wanna, I'm curious about, I'll start with the industry first, as, as mm -hmm. you decide, uh, you have you have friends who have a very strong appeal, a strong hold over you. I noticed, which is interesting, um, very suggestible. Um, if as you're as you have the idea to, to to plant grapes, I assume you're doing kind of research into the Oregon wine industry and kind of kind of. So tell me about your impressions of what the Oregon wine industry looked like at that time and what your what you thought your part would be in it. Uh, my impression was very community driven, collaborative. Um, 
and I mean, just even in the nine years that I've been here, it's changed so much where, you know, you would walk in then and see even more principles pouring um, for you. Uh, and, and it's just, as you know, it's just continued to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and gosh, my part, I just a tiny, tiny little piece of the whole thing and, and hoping to live up to, I don't think I understood quite the fishbowl that Calkinsine would feel like. Um, I think I felt like I was, you know, after living in Santa Monica and being surrounded by people and being in cities for so many years, um, this felt like it was going to be very quite private, but really it's so visible. Um, and even early on, you have neighbors texting you every time you go outside to do any sort of farm work because they just want to be helpful or, or chime in or root you on or whatever. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so I probably, I both thought I would be, you know, just a tiny piece of the industry and, and hope to live up to that, but also um, I, d- I did not expect how visible mm-hmm. the project would be and how many people would watch what you're, mm-hmm. what you're doing. So after, the, after that, the, the original building is burned down and the barn is cleared out, mm-hmm. uh, uh, what is the first step for you? Is the vineyard, is the, vineyard the first thing you kind of put in? This, this garage um, was first, and I actually uh, had gone to hike Kilimanjaro uh, while it was finishing up. Um, and that island behind you was supposed to be a few feet longer. Um, but. I called my brother on the way home from the airport and said, is there anything I should know? And he said, well, you know, accessibility-wise, yeah, that, that we shaved a few, few feet off that black walnut for you. Um, uh, but then um, in early 13, I met Sterling, um, was referred to him by Ken and Erica at Walter Scott, who were pouring at the Allison when I just happened to be they're visiting uh, a friend who is in town. Um, and so uh, I looked him up and, and uh, was super grateful to have him to work with and, and his patience in helping educate me. Um, I think the only thing I knew was how much I didn't know. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm curious about that education factor because obviously attacking this as sort of a solo person project is, is a lot. Uh, so I'm, uh, I, at what point did you feel at what point did you decide to make this this what it is? At what point did you decide, is it just one step at a time or did you end up with the vision? Yeah, I think even when I decided to plant vineyard, um, I didn't have intentions of having a wine label or tasting space and and people said, you'll, you'll find out that you're gonna wanna do that. And just doing the math, um, it's not a great business model to have um, vineyard without a wine label, mm-hmm. unless that vineyard is, is already known and can generate a margin that, that is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, but the few, first few years of harvest happened to be really strong production across the valley, and so there was extra fruit everywhere. And even if it was organic and biodynamic, there was just a lot of fruit. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so in, in that case, you really do want uh, the wine label to be able to sell that. Mm-hmm. You mentioned biodynamic farming. Was that something you planned from the beginning? No, I knew that I wanted it to be organic and I was, early on, I was intimidated by biodynamics, which now looking back is, is interesting to think that, that I felt that way. Um, 
it was Mike Etzel Sr. that walked the property here with me and, and gave me grief uh, for not, <laughs> why, why not? Uh, and he was right. He, you know, there wasn't a good reason. Mm -hmm. uh, so there's a really nice biodynamic study group here in the North Willamette Valley that um, includes folks from, from most of the biodynamic wineries here. Uh, and that was really helpful to be able to, to get comfortable and mm -hmm. have that encouragement. And they came the first time that I buried horns here um, because community is part of biodynamics mm -hmm. as well. And mm -hmm. so that was mm -hmm. nice. That was, that's one of those favorite memories. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So with, the, with that, um, how did you go about learning what you need to know to be a biodynamic farmer? I uh, had Clay Wesson as he has unconventional farm service. Mm -hmm. And so he was doing some consulting at that time. And so I, um, it wasn't something that Atlas Vineyard Management, who I transitioned from Sterling to Atlas, uh, which was, it used to be Northwest mm -hmm. Vineyard Service, Bob Bailey's. Um, and so uh, I had his additional help in addition to Atlas to, Kind of bridge that that transition um, and so uh, building that first really long tall compost pile was one of those other milestones that just felt really good like you're just doing something that that seems so helpful and useful so mm -hmm. yeah so obviously part of that and in, in addition is in addition to wine grapes having a lot of other things going on so tell mm -hmm. us as the how the rest of the kind of farm system came into place just little by little uh uh, the first, the first animals I added really were uh, certainly the rabbits in the garden. Um, I forget to count them, uh, but the runner ducks, uh, because they, uh, eat slugs and slugs were eating my organic cover crop seed. And so in researching what the, the best answer was to attack that, uh, from an organic perspective, um, you, order them from a hatchery and they arrive day old in the mail. The Newburgh post office calls you at 4.30 and says, can you please come get this very noisy package? And uh, they like send the box to you as you're at the door. Uh, get these out of here. Uh, and so we add them in a brooder downstairs and, until they were old enough to go outside. And you can train them with uh, bananas because bananas mimic slugs. Um, and in my case, I'm a golfer, and so I used a golf flag. Um, and you move the flag, you put those treats by the flag, and it teaches them that the flag means treats. And in theory, you would move the flag to get them to work where you want them to work, where you found slugs. And we've found that they do a really good job on their own of moving around the vineyard. We haven't had to, it's been a year and a half since we used the flag because they just find their way around and, and search out the slugs. So. Hmm. Um, so that's been really nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was the first thing, uh, and then uh, some old spot piglets that came from Godspeed Hollow uh, two years ago. There were three of those: Peaches and Ralph and Bo. Uh, and I had planned to butcher all three. And Peaches has these very sweet eyelashes, and she just made friends. And so she was allowed to stay, and we sent her brothers off. Um, and then a year ago, she had her first litter of piglets. Uh, and we kept one of those daughters, and her name is Georgia. So we have Georgia and Peaches here. Um, 
and then when I had buttered the mm -hmm. rest, yeah. And you have some new additions out there as well. We do. We have, uh, last fall we added Jacob Sheep with a guardian llama uh, named Blaze. And he's down in the lower field on Dop Road. And then we have some Scottish Highland cattle um, that we love. And they, one of those mamas calved on Christmas Eve. And so we have a little calf named Brody, who is adorable. Um, little Feisties, he's getting older now. He's feeling his, feeling his horns and all of that. Um, and we have Swiss Valet black nose sheep that are uh, are really, really dear. I had seen them years ago when I was playing golf in Scotland and thought, oh, I should just get some of those as if it was gonna be super easy. And I learned the hard way that they, uh, that the USDA doesn't allow the import of live animals. And, um, and not only does, does the USDA not allow that, but also Switzerland banned their export in 2014, hoping to protect the bloodlines. And so the only place you can get them if you were allowed to import them would be New Zealand and the UK. Um, and in 2020, of all things, the USDA allowed the import of purebred embryos. And so a farm in Lebanon, um, here, which just out of the whole country to have the farm be in Oregon was fantastic. Um, and I had been quietly following them and I didn't, I didn't follow their pages. I just kept an eye on them because mm -hmm. I didn't want others <laughs> seeing what I was doing. Only to learn that, that uh, another farm ranch manager here for a bigger name winery was doing the exact same thing I was. Um, but in 2020, uh, because the USDA allowed that import of, of purebred embryos, uh, the farm in Lebanon coordinated uh, with a farm in New Zealand to acquire frozen purebred embryos, bring them here, uh, and then in October, uh, surrogate ewes that were good mamas um, were implanted with these embryos. They flew in a reproductive specialist vet from Iowa and uh, you have to really want sheep to, to do this. And, um, and this is mid-pandemic. They did the implant, you know, a month after the wildfires. And I wrote to someone, this is quite likely the dumbest thing I've ever done. But, you know, it's 2020, so what could go wrong? Uh, and the take rate for sheep for that laparoscopic procedure is 60% and I wanted three lambs and so I bought five embryos uh, and three of them took mm -hmm. and so we had three lambs. Mm -hmm. As soon as we knew which were pregnant I brought the the mamas here so that they could lamb here at the vineyard and they did at the end of February. Mm -hmm. so. And in addition to just wanting them because you wanted them, is there is there a purpose for them here as well? You know, um, certainly grazing um, and adding, contributing to the compost. Mm -hmm. uh, but other than that, it's really just the ridiculous cuteness because <laughs> they're so different. You saw them; they're just they're just so different, mm -hmm. um, and their temperament is a little bit like dogs. And so. Uh, one of you said dog and sheep, or yeah, dog and sheep's clothing, mm -hmm. um, which I think is right. They're, they're so friendly and really just want to be right around. And mm -hmm. so um, we'll see how it goes. But I would love to have a small herd of those to, to help eat down the grass and let them into the vineyard at the right times of year. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So again, you talked earlier about how the, the, the plan kept evolving, but the plan didn't initially include making wines. So, so tell me mm -hmm. about taking that step and deciding to start a wine brand on top yeah. of everything else. What, what, to, what to call it, where to make it, how to make it, what yeah. to make, all of that. Tell me, tell me yeah. kind of through that process. Uh, partly the, generally the economics of just a vineyard uh, without a wine label um, is, not, is not promising. Um, and what to call it, uh, I always thought if I had had a daughter that I would name her, I would want to name her, Grace Arlen. Um, Arlen is my mom's first name. And uh, I learned very quickly how many Grace family vineyards in California and four Graces and Grace Evanstead. And, uh, and so taking that off the table. Um, Arlen is Celtic for an oath or a promise. And it's my mom's first name, made of Irish and Scottish roots and uh, because it's Celtic for an oath or a promise and because our parents raised us to work hard and keep our word that's where the the promise comes in for me um, she was very embarrassed when I told her I was naming the vineyard after her she's a home ec teacher and she just didn't know where to put that um, now she calls up and says I need two bottles of this and I would like the family discount so that's <laughs> uh, very cute mom you can have whatever you want uh, and I get harvest shirts each year for the crew that say Arlen Vineyard. And so she shows up, she's 5'1", she's a little thing. And she shows up and like surveys her, with her little harvest shirt on, surveys her, her vineyard. It's very cute. Uh, yeah. Um, but in terms of choosing uh, winemaker, that was a, uh, a more windy path. Uh, certainly not a straight line. I interviewed a few different folks um, to start. Third leaf, uh, first harvest was 2016. And um, I hired a winemaker that uh, has quite a name here in the valley. And, um, and I was probably relying on, on that name in part uh, to help because of being so unknown, no credibility in the industry from distribution side or anything else. Um, and the 16 vintage was so, so lovely. Uh, and it was one lot of 500 cases of Pinot only. I sold the Chardonnay to others and I sold the rest of the fruit to others. Um, and uh, late in the, toward winter, uh, I learned that that, some of the barrels had Brett. And so, uh, uh, we made the decision to bottle a bit earlier than we would have otherwise and hope to stay that off. And um, at the end of the day, being risk manager, my career, uh, hoping to minimize future risk, I thought that we should move facilities, not putting any blame on the facility, but just, just to try and reduce that risk. And one of the, the wineries that I had talked to initially was Lingua Franca. Uh, with their new facility, and so I asked Tama if maybe we could could bring the consulting winemaker and the the wine uh, for the next year to their facility, and so we did that. Um, and what I didn't know is that uh, that Brett was probably coming in part, at least from the winemaker style, mm. uh, the first winemaker, and so I uh, 
in early 2018 after I saw how the 2017, this next vintage was, was developing and also um, that the first vintage was likely to be a total loss. Uh, I made that decision to go ahead and, and make a change and I have been incredibly grateful to work with Tama. Hmm. Um, I not only super talented winemaker, but also just a really lovely human uh, and his whole team, Kim and Joe and Chase, the whole, the whole group there, um, super grateful to work with them and, and the wines are lovely. So when you come back and taste, uh, you'll, you'll see that. Um, uh, but that was that loss of um, the first vintage should have really probably done me in. Mm -hmm. I really shouldn't have been able to after farming that many years um, with, uh, with very little, very little revenue, um, no income certainly, to have to wait another year plus to have a vintage to sell um, was, uh, was certainly a test. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. so uh, you get to learn how bad you want something when, when something like that is in front of you and it changes all the plans. You mentioned being such a being such a novice and, and not really knowing. Mm -hmm. tell, tell me about as your wines have matured, as as your as the, the original wines have matured and as your new wines have come out. How would you describe the wines that come from here? What what's unique about them, and what what do you kind of hope people get from them? That uh, they're genuine. I hope that they you know we uh, we put a whole lot into the way that we farm. Uh, Ulysses is. Our foreman, he's been here for three years. Um, and he was a wonderful referral from the first winemaker, so we're super grateful that he's here. Uh, he cares for everything here as if it's his own. He had 15-ish years in the industry um, and was going from, from at different sites, and so he appreciates being able to be at one site. Uh, he wasn't around particularly animals before coming here, and so that's been a, an immersion. Um, and it's been fun to watch his, his animal husbandry evolve and how brave he is now compared to how he felt about the pigs initially or, or some of those things. Uh, that's been really fun. Um, I call him the engineer because he... Um, I say, okay, look, we need to figure out how to do this, something with the animals or, or whatever, um, with the biodynamic spray rig on the back of the quad. And he always figures out an answer. He's very clever. Um, I probably got off track. Oh, it's totally fine. I'm just, just about, really about the wines. Like, what, what have you noticed in the wines as they've aged? Uh, you know, the, the thing that I, there were so many days as you know, before first harvest and even after first harvest, before you have wines to release, that I would walk up the hill with Cooper from the tractor barn in the lower field and just wonder, like, are the grapes going to taste good? Is anybody going to like them? Are they, you know, is it going to make any wine that's that's lovely? Um, and uh, you just don't know. And I, you know, you want to believe that you're doing all these things, but you don't know. And um, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I love that, that with Arlen, uh, the winemaking team, because I don't have any winemaking skills, I love that the winemaking team, it's, it's Tama's interpretation of this vineyard. And um, they're light, they are all right around 13%, just consistently. Uh, we bring them in just a, a bit early. Um, 
I don't say early, but but on the early end of uh, you know if the harvest lasts however many weeks, um, and it's really a treat to have people come taste wine and and expect to find one in the lineup that they like and say how do I decide uh, because they like each of them mm -hmm. and so um, in other projects where you have multiple partners, um, each with a different vision, or a consulting winemaker uh, and an owner, each with a different vision. I just said, here's the fruit. We've done the best we can. You know, don't screw it up. Uh, do what you think is, is best. And I think the same with the, the label design. Um, early on, I had opinions about the, the first the very first wildly different um, designs. But after that, I think you trust the experts to do what, what they think is best and, mm -hmm. um, and believe that it's going to work out. And I, I feel that way, especially about the winemaking, partly because I only had so much bandwidth to learn. And for me, it was more important to learn the farming side and, and trust the winemaking side to, to those that mm -hmm. I had, had engaged. So with that, with the with the with the farming side being your main focus, um, a, a t tell me when that felt like something you were confident at, <laughs> if if that if that has happened yet, um, and b tell me about trying to do all of the rest of the things you had to do while focusing so heavily on the farming. Tell me about like yeah. building a brand mm -hmm. while doing all of that. Uh, yeah, none of it was easy. Um, the funny thing is I didn't really even realize how hard it probably was until the, the two weeks shut down in November of 2020 when we were forced and, and then when after that when we were only allowed to be open outside and the weather here, I didn't have the money to throw into some outdoor something that would be that would fit the rules and provide a good guest experience and so I had this this block of time after a really long year, after a really long couple years, to, to stew about it all uh, and relive it all. And, and that's when I realized, like, wait, not everybody does this by themselves. This, this is hard. Because uh, before that, I think I just thought everybody is doing the same thing I'm doing. And, you know, I don't know. Uh, but um, when in doubt, I have definitely focused on farming. Mm -hmm. And that's been probably the safe space for, for me to go um, because it's because it's hands in the dirt or or outside or whatever. And and probably the brand might be a little further along if I either had more resources or uh, or balanced that differently, because mm -hmm. um, certainly that's where my comfort is. Mm -hmm. um, or it's easier to find joy outside than behind the computer, um, but it's something I'm aware of. Um, uh, I did learn that I could build a website if I had to, and some of those things I think you get resourceful when you, when you need to. Um, and I'm grateful for that ability. Uh, yeah. Well, for not having been making wine for a long time, you do have quite an interesting, quite a following here. I'm, I'm curious about that embrace sort of embracing that and, and and taking on the role of sort of spokeswoman of the of, of this uh, business as well welcoming guests and and and, and tasting wine. T tell me about that experience for you and about putting your own wines out there and how that has gone for you uh, I'm a much better farmer um, 
it's interesting. I loved entertaining when I lived in Santa Monica. I just, uh, I always loved that. I had uh, just wonderful time doing that. And, and then when you spend a few years heads down, mostly by yourself in the middle of 40 acres, um, to switch back then, especially to offer something that you, you know, you think people will like, you hope they will enjoy, but you don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and to stand behind the pricing of it and the pricing for tastings and all of that. Um, I think that evolves over time too. Uh, I, it's not in me to jump up and announce, you know, there are marketers that, that I'm thinking of here in the Valley wine labels that are are very um, good at being vocal and selling themselves and all of that and that is extremely hard for me mm -hmm. that's that's every time someone pulls in like they want to be here <laughs> nobody made them come here <laughs> so um, the wines are lovely uh, it has gotten easier um, to charge the tasting fee and to to value my time again you know I think when you farm for a long time and you're used to um, just managing expenses really closely and not having uh, income to speak of that you, um, I, th I think it's possible, and in my case it happened, where you, you feel like you're not justified in, in charging that tasting fee for your time. And, you know, it's, it's lovely out there and um, it's, it's worth it. Mm -hmm. So um, that has gotten easier too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In terms of selling the wine, I'm curious for the for the direct consumer part of things. Um, how how has that how have you embraced that? I guess I mean, you, you kind of talked about it already, but how have you embraced sort of that role? And what do you want to give guests who come here? What's what's the experience you want to give them? Uh, well, I want everyone to leave um, having enjoyed their experience. Hopefully, you haven't enjoyed the wines uh, so far. So good. Um, Certainly, we'd love to be outside if we can, just because the the views and, and how lovely it is, uh, and that you get to hear the animals and see them and all of that. Um, we welcome kids to come. We only host, I've just started recently hosting a second group at the same time, where normally it's one group at a time. Uh, turns out I can pour wine for two tables at once. Um, no. uh, but. I host the tastings myself. Um, I know that probably won't always be the case, but I'm going to do that as long as I can. Um, and I do find myself, my mom was a teacher. Um, her sisters were all teachers. And I, when I have the opportunity to talk about soil health and about um, the, the bounty of the Willamette Valley and the way that um, chemicals just because they sell it at, at big box stores does not mean it's safe um, and the impact that that has and just the difference in the the quality of the food and that sort of thing so as we partner with a, a local uh, restaurant coming up to offer a, a meal that goes with the wines um, I want as much as possible for that the produce to come from here or mm -hmm. or certainly be as close to local as it can so that they have that um, I find myself talking to little kids about you know the different parts of either uh, being gentle with animals or why animals are important lately uh, talking about the cows and that pastured 
cows are, are important and they are a, a component of a healthy mm -hmm. ecosystem. And despite what, you know, what may be out there in, in the current news. Um, so that's certainly something that I want folks to, to see. Uh, I try to warn them ahead of time that it's rustic here, that we're not fancy. Uh, so that no one is disappointed when they pull in. Um, but we also pour wine outside into pretty Zalto glasses and, and we have that side as well. The farm dinners that we've had here are really, really refined and lovely in the middle of a rustic setting. And so uh, I like being able to balance both. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned obviously biodynamics uh, uh, as kind of it's obviously a growing part of, of Oregon agriculture, mm -hmm. and you mentioned kind of the group you're a part of, the education group. I'm curious, in your mind, as you've as you've become more educated in biodynamics and more uh, more practitioner of it, how have you seen it uh, in Oregon? Is it how have you seen it being embraced by Oregonians, by by farmers, and by consumers? Mm -hmm. And what do you sort of see it for the future of biodynamics here? I think it's a few things. I think I think more and more consumers are aware and less. Um, less put off by it. I think they're more open to to it, uh, at least in my experience. Um, I do think that more and more folks are embracing it as a farming method. Um, and to me, it's not something new. It's returning to what was working way before, of course. Um, I also have, I'm pretty mama bear protective about the this farm and the soil and the valley itself. Um, uh, and it concerns me that some um, think of it more as a marketing tool. And the same thing with acquiring animals for vineyards. Um, hopefully they are, uh, are thinking long-term and are uh, genuine in, in their care for how it impacts um, their own farm and their own pr product from that farm and and their employees and everything else. Um, but I, I've had some folks recently ask me about animals or different things and, oh, that's a great market. You know, I, that, that, we're just going to market the daylights out of it. That's not, that's so not why to do it. But, but that's me and that's my own, you know, everybody gets to pick their own path. But I uh, hope that that um, more and more, and I hope more and more that that farms, vineyards that are marketing themselves as sustainable will challenge what that means mm -hmm. and, and that live will continue to evolve and, um, and raise their standards and, you know, that they'll continue to do that because um, it's certainly possible. Just, mm -hmm. just because it's hard doesn't mean, <laughs> just because it's, it's, um, now, I don't find that it costs a lot more. I think that, um, but here we were going to put care in no matter what. I think one of the things I'm most proud of is no matter how difficult uh, things got along the way, I just found a way to do what the vineyard needed no matter what and, and to look after the, the vines and what was best for them. You mentioned sustainability there, such an interesting word in, in Oregon wine. Um, to you, how would you define it? What would you hope people would strive for when it comes to sustainability in, in Oregon wine practices? I would say stretch further. <laughs> I would. I, um, I think that coming from a corporate environment where uh, shareholder value was so 
so keenly measured. Um, you live and die by quarterly results. Uh, I think that it's it's easy to, I shouldn't say easy, I think it's one path to be, uh, to measure financially. And I think, I think that there's just so much more than that. And I think in this valley where we are so incredibly lucky to have the community and the soil and the, the environment that we do to grow these grapes, um, I just don't, I just, I don't know where to put the, the idea that um, you would take profit off before uh, doing every last thing you could for the environment. Mm -hmm. and, and particularly if you're marketing yourself as, as caring about the environment. If you're still using glyphosate, in my opinion, in my own opinion, nobody else's, uh, you're not caring about the environment. Mm -hmm. And the same with some of those other chemicals. Mm -hmm. If you have a huge, perfectly manicured lawn, and I'm a golfer, something something's going on. So challenge yourself. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned earlier your label designs. Uh, tell us about coming to these and, and about what 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 what's going on with these labels. The designer is Michael Kurtz from Heroist uh, in Portland, and he happens to be. Maggie Harrison's husband, uh, which I didn't know when I was referred to him uh, circuitously. Um, they're an archival topographical map representative of this general area, not Arlen specifically. Um, but this really was a case similar to trusting the winemaker's interpretation of the fruit that we grow here. This was a, uh, a case of trusting the, the designer um, and he gave me some very broad early choices and I narrowed it from there. But after that, I really, um, he would send me some colors and I just thought, oh, I don't know how that ever makes sense. And on my screen, I thought it must be my computer screen and I just couldn't see it. And I didn't say any, I just let it fly and trusted him because his results have been so good with others. And, uh, and I love them. I love how clean they look. I love that each color looks a little bit different um, because I'm not, intending to be um, to have a whole lot of distribution uh, and be on store shelves and need a name that's easily picked out and recognizable. Uh, I'm fine with the fact that the name on some of them blends in. Um, quite an endeavor to uh, match the wax colors. You've probably heard from others. The little tiny bits of wax come in primary colors only. At some point in my kitchen behind you, I really thought I was just going to have to move because even though it was little tiny prep dishes with little tiny bits of wax trying to get the color right and then extrapolate into larger volumes, um, those little bits of wax get, they travel fast. Uh, but I like that we do the waxing ourselves. Uh, my niece and Ulysses uh, both hated it when we started. Um, but I drug them with me anyway, and they were good sports. Uh, some close friends came and visited. Um, uh, but I, I'm happy with how they turned out. Yeah. I'm interesting, interested in the, in the consumer reaction too, since so much of your wine is being sold mm -hmm. uh, hand to hand. I, I'm curious, how do how people react to your labels? They love the labels, and they also like the names. Um, the names, uh, 
the first release in 2017, uh, we had Running With Scissors, and then we had In Good Faith, because I think if you're going to run with scissors and take risks, you should also have some belief that it all works out, and so that's where the In Good Faith came from. Um, Lyon is the, the Chardonnay, which is French for Linus, and um, uh, as a Leo who did this, took this project on, um, that felt like a good name. In 2018, we added Simple Math, and I knew when I bottled the first vintage, um, such a small amount, uh, but I knew that there was a trademark issue with running with scissors, and I thought the first year, it's such a small quantity. First of all, somebody would have to know I was here, and nobody knows I'm here, so uh, I went ahead and did it. Um, but I decided not to risk that a second year. Um, and nobody's bottling under that name. A big company just happens to own the trademark. Um, and so I switched from uh, Running With Scissors to State of Grace. Um, and then in 2019, so last year during the pandemic as we were deciding to bottle the 19s, um, I ended up with a little more Chardonnay that year than I had, had planned. And uh, so Tomas said, you know, how many SKUs do you need? How many, how many Pinots are we making? How many Chardonnays? And I said, you know, I still have almost no distribution. So let's let the wine tell us. And so we decided that we could do three distinct Chardonnays that would be lovely and four different Pinots. And so we added all the Darlings Chardonnay and uh, Wit and Logic Chardonnay. And then uh, I named one of the Pinots, the fourth Pinot, Equal Play, P-L-A-Y. And we're uh, donating the proceeds of that one to uh, diversity and inclusion, social justice causes, which makes me very happy. And it made Tama happy when I told him that, that I wanted to do that. He asked, which lot? And I said, you can choose. And so I'll be right back. So that was, it was fun to have them, to have the winemaking team be excited about that as well. Yeah. Such an interesting part of wine is that you can do things with the finished product. So I'm curious, um, what prompted that desire to, to give back, and, and what do you see as you look ahead for your wines? Is, are there other causes you'd like to support with your brand? Uh, probably continuing on that general path with support, um, and it just I feel very strongly about it. Uh, for all the reasons. Um, mm -hmm. And I, my wish would be that there are so many diverse groups trying to make a difference. And it feels like uh, the infrastructure for so many diverse groups could be, could be um, exponentially beneficial to the cause uh, by banding together. And I think that's particularly true in the wine industry where there, it feels like, I don't know if this is true, but it feels like there are so many different groups that all have great intent and really great folks behind them, um, but they're each trying to, to create something, and so a lot of energy is being spent creating that, uh, and maybe they could band together and work closer. So. Hmm. But as far as, as the wine. Teacher, part of my parents both were, were generous, uh, even when they didn't have a lot to give, and um, I feel that same way. So, yeah. 
I think being part of community means being a positive part of community. Mm-hmm. You know that that however you can, whatever that that contribution is, whether it's to the soil or being a good neighbor or um, social justice causes, mm-hmm. donating produce, whatever it is mm-hmm. that being a good leader to your employees, treating them well. So on that positive note, let's talk about 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, we've talked about it a little bit already, but I want to start with, with the pandemic, um, sort of uh, initial response to the pandemic and, and the, the ways in which it affected your work um, and the changes you had to make last year to, to, to make sure. things work in 2020. Uh, because of the few years prior to 2020 for me, I felt like I'd already lived to some extent in a pandemic kind of environment. I had isolated myself quite a bit, um, which probably wasn't a great thing. Uh, I was already working with, you know, no income to begin with. Um, I was holding on to refinance my project and I was right on the edge as we came into the pandemic of being able to do that. And so, um, of course, that the bank said, you know, let's see how this whole pandemic thing works out, um, which I totally get as a finance person. I totally, they were right. Um, but uh, it was really important to me to, to continue paying uh, my one employee and my niece um, so that they weren't impacted. And I, I was afraid at times that I might have to consider furloughing, but it just, I never let it be a consideration. I just kept, I just kept going, trying to figure out how to make that work. And um, so I'm proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that even after the wildfires, um, when so much of that fruit was supposed to be sold and get us through the end of the year, uh, um, we had only been open for tasting such a short time before the pandemic started that, um, and I was only hosting tastings myself before the pandemic started, one, one group at a time. So that part didn't particularly change when we were allowed to be open. It was, it was still just me and it was still just one group at a time. Um, very grateful to be able to work outside. Um, and so because it was just the three of us and, and there was so much space here, that was not as difficult as I'm sure it was for so many others or inside the winery where you would have to be, you know, different distancing and all of that. So we were really, we were fortunate in that way. Um, we did more of the, the work ourselves to try and keep expenses down. Um, and I'm very good at managing expenses. We didn't have a lot for a lot of years growing up. Uh, and so I, I was used to to doing without and to, to making things work. And so it was really um, just pulling those skills back out or, or just continuing to use them, really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a still fairly, as mentioned, fairly new wine brand, how, how did you go about selling wine during the pandemic? Uh, you know, wine's a tough, it's a tough thing to sell when no one's tried it, you know. Um, I won't forget being on the phone in just before that two-week shutdown in mid-November with the governor's office. They had organized an industry Zoom call to plead for our, our livelihoods. And um, the governor's office was proud of the fact that we could still sell retail. And you can, you know, people can come inside to buy wine. You're fine. You, you totally have this, you know, we're not hurting you. 
kind of tone. And um, when you have a new wine brand that people are just barely beginning to refer others to come try, and the price points aren't low, you know, it's not a, a $10 purchase, um, that's a big ask for people to buy wine that they haven't tried. And so from a vineyard that's unknown and, and all of that. And so um, really the sales that I did have were through folks who had already tried the wines and were gracious to come back and buy more um, or to refer, you know, if they had enough credibility with their friends, they referred some folks, but it really, it was, it was a very small number of, of folks. And when we were allowed to be open, people were, were great about referring others and then coming to, to try the wines, but it's, it was a pretty small number. We had the only public um, gathering before the pandemic was the Chardonnay celebration at the Allison. And so I had done that um, to really great response. Uh, and so, yeah, pretty sparse. Of course, the other part of 2020, as you mentioned, was harvest. Yeah. Tell me about harvest here and how you, how you got through. Uh, the really fun thing about the fruit that we did harvest is that we started night picking, which I've wanted to do for a few years. And um, 2020 was a great time to do it because uh, we were able to pick at night when it was cool. And so for the crew needing to wear masks, it was one less element of the heat in the morning. And that comes up quick, even at eight o'clock, it's, it's warm in the summer. And so um, we also started using bin trailers in the rows. So the crew didn't have to carry buckets up the rows. Um, it was more relaxed. There was a really nice energy about that. Uh, so before the fire started, that was, that was a nice part of, of the beginning of the harvest. Um, my fruit for the Arlen label, which is about a third of what the vineyard produces, uh, was picked in the winery the day before the fire started. So thankfully, the uh, relatively low level of alcohol, the low sugar that we bring the fruit in, uh, combined with um, Tomas style, um, and this site being just a, a, a bit early, uh, allowed me and Arlen label to have a full pristine vintage. Um, certainly we, we know how lucky we are uh, to have that, and I'm extremely grateful for that. I think I was due for something to break uh, my way, but um, then the next day the, the fire started and I didn't want the crew picking in smoke. And so, uh, so I went through a lot of navigation to pay them to not pick the day that we couldn't cancel them soon enough. They were already on the road when we saw how, that the levels hadn't improved the way they had been predicted to um, that Saturday, but um, most of the fruit hung out. We had a few, uh, a few that took the fruit in and, and made a rosé, um, but uh, most of that fruit hung here and uh, was a loss from a revenue standpoint and a heartbreaker to see it after farming it ourselves um, through the year with the Atlas team. To see it hanging there was just this reminder of how tough the year had been just for everyone. Um, uh, and I think difficult times like that are when you see what people are made of. And I think you have the opportunity then to, 
to learn, um, you know, one winemaker said, hey, we're going we're gonna to bring the fruit in. We're going to try and make something. If we can't make something, we'll split the cost with you, uh, which was really generous and, and much appreciated. Um, and there were some others that, that the stress of their small business uh, showed through and, and um, probably wasn't you know, what you'd hope for. But, uh, but what a difficult time for everybody. And I certainly don't fault the wineries for not being able to make pretty fruit. You probably heard this from everybody. Uh, and you know, there's no, there's no bad feelings on my part about folks not taking the fruit and it, it just wasn't going to make pretty wine. The smoke here was really, really awful. Um, I hauled out the cats and dogs and the old truck cause two roads over were a warning to evacuate. And I just didn't want to have to deal with that if we did have to go somewhere. So I stayed with the pigs and the ducks and, and uh, so, yeah, but uh, and, you know, here we are. So hmm. keep your sense of humor about you and just keep farming and yeah. As you look ahead, after having dealt with something like that, mm -hmm. are there things you've pulled out of sort of lessons for, for next time or is it, or are you, do you still feel very susceptible to something like that? Uh, I, I now have, last year was my fifth year, so I now have five years of crop revenue and yield data. Uh, so I do have crop insurance going forward um, with that, that data. Um, so that's certainly helpful, but uh, I think I'm just aware that, you know, it can happen again. And, and given the environment and the West Coast and everything else, it's, it's not unlikely. Um, but it's just one of those risks that will be here. And there are, you know, there are any number of risks that can happen. And so, uh, the one good thing about all the different challenges that have come up uh, is that, you know, by the time the next challenge, like when the wildfires hit, I'm like, okay, <laughs> you know, this is what's next. We'll, we figured everything else out. We'll figure this out too. So. Early on, we talked, you talked a little bit about sort of your initial impressions of, of the industry mm -hmm. and, and some of the changes. I'm curious if you could elaborate a little bit on what the biggest changes you've seen in Oregon wine are since you've been here. What's different about it now than kind of your, what you first saw uh, in the industry? I don't know if I was just too new to not notice and it was growing at the same pace that it is now, but uh, the growth is, is it's so evident, you know, this, the view outside looks out to the Dundee Hills and that hillside was not cleared uh, anywhere near the way that it is. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of good things come with that. I think also um, one of the challenges I see that comes with that is, is uh, parties that want to change Oregon. They want to put their own mark on it. They want, you know, they're, um, I'm going to say this as someone who lived in California for a lot of years, uh, they want their California home and their California lawn in, you know, here in the middle of, of wine country. And, and they want to be able to do whatever they want with the land that they purchase. Mm -hmm. And um, one thing that's come up recently is adding a second farm dwelling um, to agricultural land and those are supposed to be some pretty tight parameters and as I'm learning the parameters aren't as tight as 
as I would have guessed. Mm -hmm. And um, it makes me sad because having grown up in the Northwest on a farm with an appreciation for land, um, and, and again, the bounty of the Northwest and what, what it provides, um, the second home and dividing up good agricultural land just feels, if every, if every farm does that, it's not gonna be wine country the way that we've enjoyed it. And it's not gonna be what attracted those, those folks to here in the first place. Um, and so, again, I feel very mama bear protective about, um, about the, this notion that it is agricultural land and that is protected and I, I, I wish for county residents to, to work together um, in, a, in a better way, a more collaborative way on protecting that. Mm -hmm. So with that said, what do you see as you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry, both coming out of the pandemic, but also just in general? What is it, what is going to happen in the industry in the next in the upcoming years? And what do you maybe hope for, or maybe what are you what are you afraid of? That Counting Crow song, um, Big Yellow Taxi, where they paved paradise and put up a parking lot, that has just been on repeat in my head. So what I'm afraid of is is it turning into a tourist trap. Um, my favorite places to travel in the world are, are off the beaten path and are, are um, have not been, um, I'm going to say ruined, but, which isn't fair. Um, but I think that there's a charm of, of holding on to staying small. Mm -hmm. um, not to say there isn't, I have great appreciation for the larger wineries that we have here, and, but <clears throat> um, You know that rather than get frustrated by the tractor or farm equipment that's moving from from pasture to pasture, just embrace it and let it. You know, let it. We don't have to turn it into to something else. Um, yeah. Uh, in terms of the industry, I think that, just my own humble opinion, some of the growth has been really, the um, the addition of the auction. Uh, and the marketing um, that that has accomplished is amazing. I, I happily um, pay my dues for those groups because the, the contribution that they make to protecting what we have is, is really great. And I think we're fortunate to have the strong leadership in those areas. Um, I, as far as can, I'm both grateful for the crew that we have, super grateful. Um, the both the contract crew that comes in through Atlas to work with us, uh, we see the same faces year over year, and that's really fun. Um, and I hope that the industry continues to not just talk about how thankful they are, but to pay higher wages. I think. You know, when folks reach out to me and say, hey, does Ulysses know anybody that we could hire? Um, and they tell me what they're thinking of paying. I say, well, you know, you need to add this much to it before I'm even going to ask him because that's not a living wage. So uh, I think that I think that's on us, and, and it's not it's not as hard as as maybe 
you know, <clears throat> again, business owners, it's quick to dismiss, oh, we can't possibly do that. You know, reach, reach down, figure, figure out somewhere, because you can. <laughs> so um, if I can figure that out, man, somebody actually turning, you know, generating income already can, can do that. So uh, that's something that I would like to see the industry do. Mm -hmm. um, I'm grateful for the programs like iVoy and uh, Salute that look after um, professional development and health and all of those things. Um, and those are causes that I like to contribute to. Mm -hmm. So obviously you're, you're, you have an, an unending list of projects and new, new, new things going on. No more animals. No more, an, no, no more animals though. No more animals. You heard it here, Cooper. <laughs> well, what is uh, up next for you? What, what are you sort of looking forward to? Uh, uh, projects or, or accomplishments or, or sort of future plans? Uh, refining my, the business side of, of this project. Um, Right now, folks reaching out for tasting appointments and all of that are stuck with, with uh, communicating with me. Um, and it's a busy, it's a busy long day. Um, you can't be hosting tastings. And really, the tastings go back to back from 11 to 5, um, usually at least four days a week. And so um, you're not returning calls during that time. You're not texting during that time. You're fully engaged with whoever you're, you're interacting with. And... Um, so hopefully being able to add someone who can, can help with that um, and help with tastings and help with the hospitality side. And we have a very small uh, Cooper's Lot, it's named after the dog, uh, membership. Um, uh, but we have some native plant projects going here and so refining what we already have. Um, eventually uh, I would live down by the creek and there would be a, a small understated tasting room, but I'd settle for, you know, for, uh, for just continuing to be open and I'm grateful, very grateful that we're allowed to be open now and, mm -hmm. and welcoming guests back and hearing laughter at the tables. So. Mm -hmm. But no other sheep out there that you're trying to get here? There are no other sheep, uh, no. Um, mm -mm. No other sheep. Not sure if I totally believe that, but <laughs> so uh, obviously you took an interesting path into the industry. I've taken an interesting path through it so far. I have a couple questions about that. The, the first one is, if you were giving advice or words of wisdom to someone else joining the industry, joining the industry in any general way, what would your words of wisdom to them be? I, um, you know, I talked to the the biodynamic study group about um, providing a resource. Generally, when you come into this industry, if you don't already know someone, the first people you tend to meet are those that provide a service. Mm -hmm. So they can clear your land, they can plant your vineyard, they can sell you something. So uh, as collaborative and as, as generous as folks are, it would be really nice to have um, a group of farmers who have had some experiences, had, had some tumbles, um, made their mistakes like I have, uh, to have that kind of a group to bounce things off of um, rather than folks that are, are looking to sell something. Mm -hmm. uh, not that that's bad, just that it's a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And um, 
particularly folks that can talk about the choices between different sustainability methods and different farming methods and, and um, have those resources earlier on. Um, the other thing I would say is, is as much as I thought I had spent time on the property and, and understood it, I think until you spend a year with the property, you don't really know that land. And um, and so if I were giving advice, I would tell someone to, to stay in that little camp trailer, you know, an extra six months and, and really get a feel for how the rain falls and, and where the wet spots are and um, how the views change through the seasons and all of that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I'd do anything incredibly different, but I do think that there's, there's benefit in getting to know it through just like any other mm -hmm. relationship, mm -hmm. yeah. So my other question for you is that obviously this, this, the, the project has grown far beyond what you probably, what you foresaw. Looking back, would you do it again? Is this, is this, is this, the, is this a path that you would take? I was 20 years younger three years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it. Um, if I had the, if someone were telling me all the things that I went through, I don't know that I would have even believed them. I mean, I hate to say that, but um, I mean, nobody could have scripted some of these challenges. Uh, but um, I certainly wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade the chance to look after this piece of land um, and to share these wines that Taman and his team have created. Yeah. All right. All the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have? And any, anything I didn't cover that we should have covered? Uh, the, in addition to being selected for the Chardonnay celebration, the other thing that, that was really, really cool that carried me through the pandemic um, is that, again, as a golfer, um, I was at the Masters a number of years ago before I'd had first harvest and uh, I remember specifically sitting during lunch at Augusta National and thinking, you know, someday when I have a wine that I think will measure up, I'm going to figure out how to get them to try it. And in December of 19, I had some friends playing golf there, and they asked me to send two bottles of Chardonnay and two bottles of Pinot for their meal and to have, um, and I had a six-pack chipper box going to Augusta National Golf Club. And so I thought about what kind of note I could possibly write to the wine director. And, you know, hey, I'm in Oregon. I have no credibility whatsoever. You've never heard of me. The vineyard's young. It's unproven, you know. Uh, and so I just decided to just stick in an extra bottle of Chardonnay and an extra bottle of Pinot. And at the end of January of 20, not knowing what else was coming in 20. Mm -hmm. I had an email from the wine director saying, hey, we love the wines, and we've done our homework on you. Uh, we love the way you farm, love your story. Do you have a distributor in Georgia? We'd love to carry them. And I was definitely dancing in my kitchen. And like, I don't know, but I will find you. Yeah. So um, that, was, that was one of those, you know, if you picked one placement that you would want your wine to go in the whole world before your first harvest, and then they come to you um, just because you took a chance and, and sent a couple of bottles, that was, that was really cool. So 
That's amazing. That I definitely looked back on and held on to tight during 2020 and, and as we came into 21. So, yeah. So was that the 2020 Masters then? That it, the, the one? It's in their clubhouse, in the clubhouse for members. Yeah. yeah. So. Concert yeah. distribution. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Awesome. So, it's so exciting. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not something you can broadcast on social media because as a private club that is incredibly private to begin with. Um, but, uh, it's definitely a proud moment for this this farmer. So, yep. That is amazing. Well, thank you so much, Janice, you. for your stories today, for your for your for your passion and, and your interesting wisdom, uh, and all of the overcoming all the challenges. I appreciate you talking about all of that. Um, thanks for hosting us here. Thank you for and, coming out. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.